everyone, and welcome to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can offer any support to help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So, over the past few months, I've been discussing the events marking the end of what we customarily call the Middle Ages and the beginning of the modern world. I already talked about Luther and the beginning of the Reformation, Columbus and the conquest of the Americas, and I'm going to continue in that same basic time period. I'm going to go back and talk about the event that scholars have customarily taken to mark the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the modern world, and indeed the event that created the very idea of the Middle Ages and the modern world, and that is the Renaissance. So I'm going to talk mainly about the early Renaissance, the roots of it, and specifically I'm going to talk about Renaissance humanism, okay, the body of ideas, attitudes, knowledge that scholars and artists in this era, in the 14 and 1500s, believed set them apart from their forebears. And the most basic fundamental skill that people acquired and cultivated at this time that made them humanists, in their own words, was mastery of classical Latin. Okay, and that is the basic core skill that defined the Renaissance in the minds of people who started this movement, right? We tend to think of the Renaissance now as a movement of art, and certainly it was important, and uh, it was a time of great artistic innovation and flourishing, and uh, people thought of art at that time as something new and different and exciting. But before the artistic Renaissance, there was the Renaissance in philosophy and literature, and the matrix of that Renaissance was knowledge of classical Latin. If you listened to my previous lecture about the Enlightenment, you know that I argue that there was no such event as the Enlightenment, that that is a retrospective creation and a distortion of what actually happened in the 18th century, which was basically a welter of confusion and contradiction. One could make a similar argument about the Renaissance, but in fact, there were far more people at the time in this earlier era, in the 14 and 1500s, who did believe and did say that they were part of a reawakening, or as it was originally called in Italian, Rinascimento. Right, a rebirth of classical learning and classical greatness, and a rebirth of humanism or humanitas, appreciation and celebration of the human being and human capabilities. This idea of, of Rinascimento, or as we call it now, Renaissance, right? we use the French term 
renaissance, meaning rebirth, because renaissance ideas came to England via France, right? So all these terms that we use, like, like courtier, they're original prototypes in Italian, but the forms that we use are French because of this accident of history and geography. But this belief and this aspiration towards rebirth of the classical world began in Florence, okay? And it's customarily been traced back to the city of Florence in northern Italy in the early 1300s, right? So as Europe was moving from what we call the High Middle Ages gradually into the Late Middle Ages, and there were new problems and challenges to medieval society. It was at this time that one particular man called Francesco Petrarca took up a career of travel, of writing, of poetry and philosophy, and who chose to see himself as somehow radically different from others around him and from the world and the time in which he lived. So, Francesco Petrarca, or Petrarch, as we call him now in English, lived from 1304 to 1374, and he was an educated man. He had studied classics, philosophy, theology. He had a, a decent uh, education for a man in the late Middle Ages. And he was uh, an avid traveler. He was something of an amateur explorer. And there's actually one particular event in his life that he recorded and that he told friends about that many years later people look back at as a kind of pivotal moment. In 1336, when he was traveling in southern France, he climbed a mountain called Mount Ventoux. And Petrarch sometimes liked to claim that he was the first person ever to scale this mountain which is not true. Uh, others, <laughs> a number of others had done it before him, including the philosopher and physicist Jean Buridan. But Petrarch made this sort of journey up the mountain alone, on his own. And once he reached the summit, he looked out at the dazzling landscape around him and was sort of enthralled with the natural beauty and with his own daring and ambition in mounting this this summit just for the sake of seeing the view. But once he had done so, he then felt a moment of guilt. Petrarch was also a reader and admirer of Augustine. He believed in humility and he believed in spiritual self-examination and self-questioning. So after climbing the mountain and seeing the view, he actually scolded himself for indulging too much in pleasure in worldly material things, and instead decided that he would turn his striving and his ambition towards inward, towards his own soul, and towards trying to live a better, more virtuous, more perfect life. And biographers of Petrarch like to point to this moment on Mount Ventoux as the best point you can pick out as the sort of beginning of the Renaissance, right? A, a leaping forth, an ambitious a will to explore, which then one turns towards oneself and one's own character. 
Petrarch, after his journey on Mount Ventoux, uh, threw himself even more deeply into study, into reading and translation, particularly of the classics. And Petrarch celebrated and venerated the ancient classics like really no one else did in his lifetime. In particular, he found and translated Cicero's letters, right? So the ancient Roman statesman and philosopher who had written about politics, power, duty, ethics, uh, rhetoric, and oratory. And Petrarch set about translating these letters, and in doing so, he committed himself to mastering the original form of Latin in which Cicero and his contemporaries had written. Now, of course, all educated people in Western Christendom at this time knew Latin, and most writing was in Latin, but it was an evolved form of Latin. It was, a, it was different. It had a different vocabulary. It had different sound systems. The style was dramatically different from what you would have read, say, in, in the Roman Empire uh, a thousand or fifteen hundred years earlier. So Petrarch really had to learn a very different form and a different style of Latin writing, and one that was less adapted to philosophical tracts or theology or church record keeping, one that was more fluent, more conversational, more suited to oratory and personal personal communication. And once he had studied this older form of Latin, Petrarch found his mind sort of freed to explore all kinds of ideas that had become unfamiliar and were no longer current in the 14th century, right? Ideas about history and politics, geography, philosophy. And Petrarch called this new sort of discovery of ancient Roman thought the light of literature, right? And this is the phrase he would use over and over again. And increasingly, he would uh, cast his own time as a time of darkness, right? And it is actually Petrarch who creates this notion of the Dark Age and argues that uh, his own world was corrupt and ignorant, barbaric, and that it was these ancients like Cicero and his interlocutors who had this sort of freer, more active mind for exploring the world and communicating and acting. Now, as I already alluded to, Petrarch was a devout Christian and a devotee of St. Augustine. So this excitement and embrace of the classics put Petrarch in an odd position because he knew that these thinkers were not Christian. And in a way, this, this pained him and troubled him. He said, I wish Cicero had been a Christian. And he did a, a sort of intellectual maneuver to deal with this dilemma by saying, well, Cicero lived before Christ. He didn't have the opportunity to be a Christian, but surely had he known the gospel, he would have been, right? And this is the sort of turn of thought that many authors and statesmen and explorers for centuries afterwards would would use, right? Would say uh, these, these classical authors, they are pagan, 
but they are not wrapped in the darkness of paganism. They had their own light, they had their own virtue, and they would have been Christian had they had that been possible. And in a sense, you could almost say that they that these people like Plato, for instance, had some similar ideas to Christianity. And they were, you might say, Christians avant la lettre. They were sort of Christians before there was Christianity, right? And there was this way then of redeeming and validating these ancient authors, even though they were pagans. So Petrarch first creates this notion that uh, that his own time is a time of darkness, right? And and putting forward this argument necessarily entailed. Uh, ignoring or jettisoning the huge body of intellectual work that had been created in the Middle Ages, uh, scholastic philosophy, the study of Aristotle, uh, the physics, mechanics, uh, mathematics, optics of that time, and sort of pushing that aside and saying, no, the real intellectual life, the real philosophical life lies with the ancient authors. And the crucial criterion that Petrarch and his admirers used was actually looking at people's lives. Many of them wrote biographies of these ancient authors, and they saw them as men of action, right? So many of them were statesmen or soldiers or naturalists, explorers. Uh, they were not schoolmen. They were not these sort of atrophied, you know, hunchbacked intellectual monks shut up in cathedral schools, right? And it's it's the persona of the classic philosopher that sets them apart. This way of viewing the world is formalized not long after by other Florentine writers, particularly the historian Bruni, Leonardo Bruni, who I've mentioned before in my, my first lecture about the myth of the Middle Ages. And Bruni's history of the Florentine people is the first to put forward the tripartite division of history, right? There was the ancient, then the medieval, then the modern, right? And Bruni saw himself and his contemporaries as moderns because they were reviving the wisdom of the ancients. Bruni also studied the classics himself, particularly Cicero, he wrote biographies of classical philosophers and statesmen, and similarly, he also wrote biographies of more recent Florentines, uh, namely Dante and Petrarch. And in this way, Bruni helped to cultivate the idea that Florentine philosophers, artists of his era were, in a sense, uh, the, the peers of the ancients, right? That that the the wisdom and the power of the ancients was come back to life in his in the Florence of his own era, right? And that's what modern meant to him. And Bruni sort of grouped these ancient and modern studies together under the label of humanist study, right? So he used this ancient Roman term humanitas, which meant uh, the love and celebration of human qualities and the cultivation of good human qualities, right? Whether that was wisdom, eloquence, 
athletic power, military prowess, cultivation and assertion of the powers of human beings. That's what it seems ancient authors meant by humanitas. And when Bruni takes this term up centuries later, he uses it particularly particularly to mean the study and emulation of exemplary men, okay? Whether that be Cicero or Julius Caesar or Dante or Petrarch and so on. The Renaissance humanists in the 13 and 1400s celebrated civic life, okay? So I've already said Cicero was really central to this revival of humanitas. Also, the historians Livy and Polybius, who not only narrated but analyzed and commented on the rise and fall of political figures, the clash between different political systems, and who taught about and commented on the skills and habits necessary to succeed in political life. Okay, so why were these particular authors and subjects so appealing and why did they become so popular among the sort of literate class of Florence and also of other Italian cities at this time? You know, Siena, Lucca, Venice, and so on. Well, in this time, especially the early 1400s, when this Renaissance or Rinascimento was just getting underway, there was a political crisis where various cities that had started out in the Middle Ages as small communes or comunes in northern Italy were threatened and their independence was threatened. There were new powers rising. Okay, this was during the gunpowder revolution, right? When uh, larger powers, uh, rulers with centralized states could have a tremendous offensive advantage and conquer their neighbors much more quickly. At this time, several rising new powers, particularly Milan, were expanding rapidly and acting aggressively. And these other neighboring cities, like Florence, Pisa, Lucca, Parma, were threatened with possible annexation. And these various cities wanted to defend their traditional independence or autonomy. Uh, and some of them had charters granting them autonomy within the Papal States or within the Holy Roman Empire. And it was appealing to them, and it made sense to them, to argue that smaller cities ought to be independent and ought to be self-governing republics, right? And so they had been republics of a sort for a long time. You know, I've talked about how Florence was a sort of hodgepodge, republic-like polity with the different guilds having representation in government. But now, after 1400, when they had to give reasons and justify their independence, they turned to the ideas of classical antiquity, of ancient Greece and Republican Rome, and of these authors like Livy and Polybius and Cicero, who defended the value of political life and of citizens' participation in politics. Okay, Aristotle was one philosopher among many who 
actually argued that human life can reach its highest, most successful, most fulfilling form through politics, through the life of the politically active citizen. So the literate classes, whether it was you know professionals, merchants, financiers, government officials, diplomats, who ran these cities and who wanted to see them maintain their independence, this kind of classical revival was perfect. It was a perfect self-justification. It was perfect propaganda. Naturally, a sort of intellectual tension and intellectual clash arose as this Renaissance revival of the ancients confronted the accepted long-standing ideas about ethics and politics that had been familiar through the Middle Ages. So you might remember I've mentioned the most widely known, most uh, ubiquitous and familiar philosopher through most of the Middle Ages was not actually Augustine. As important as Augustine was in terms of theology and ethics and history, it was actually Boethius, right? And Boethius is a rather mysterious figure. He was a government official in what was left of the Roman state in the 6th century, right? So after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And he served in high government office before then being accused of some sort of disloyalty and imprisoned. And during his imprisonment, he wrote The Consolation of Philosophy, where he imagines himself talking with an, a sort of goddess of philosophy who comes to him and comforts him by basically saying, life is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Uh, everything you have can be taken away from you at any moment, except for your character and your virtue. So you should take comfort and solace in your own goodness, right? Which is the only thing that you can always have and always maintain, no matter what happens to you, right? So the philosophy of Boethius is well-suited to a world where people feel that they have no control over events and that the purpose of philosophy should be to provide a sense of, of solace and perspective. Well, this outlook that Petrarch championed and that the humanists after him liked to celebrate through the classics was one of action, right? Every man should strive to be an explorer, to be a ruler or a mover of some sort, right? You should overcome events, okay? And this sort of tension between how to approach the world and what kind of lesson to take from philosophy is grappled with most vividly and most obviously in Machiavelli, okay? Machiavelli was another Florentine citizen of a few generations later. He was a, a philosopher and a scholar, and as well as a statesman and a power player. So in that way, you know, right off the bat, we can see he was a kind of embodiment 
of this new growing Renaissance ideal of this sort of the philosopher as man of action. He served as Secretary of State to the Second Chancery, which was a Republican government that seized power in Florence in 1498. So the Medici's ruled Florence through much of the 1400s. They fell from power, their government collapsed. There was a brief period where a, an apocalyptic preacher named Savonarola took control of the city. And then after he was overthrown, a Republican government was organized. And Machiavelli served as secretary to this government between 1498 and 1512. So he was a serious you know, power player in Italy. But this government also eventually fell, and in 1512, the Medici's came back to power and banished Machiavelli from the city. So he had to then retreat into a life of, of writing and philosophy, although he still actively pursued hopes of returning to politics, right? He did not simply resign himself to a retirement in the country as a thinker and writer. And I'll, I'll get back to that later. But this is when Machiavelli wrote his famous books, uh, The Prince, about rulership, and The Discourses, which was actually his magnum opus, this, his Discourses on Livy, right? So this was his commentary on the Roman historian Livy, right? So he's examining ancient politics, warfare, and statesmanship. He's examining Livy's commentaries and analyses on this ancient history, and he's adding in his, in his own observations from the intervening thousand years of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and his own career in Italy. And in The Prince, which is more widely read today, although Machiavelli actually was a Republican. He believed in a Republican form of government. He believed in active, involved citizenship. His work that he believed in most fervently was the discourses. But nonetheless, in The Prince, which is a much uh, shorter and pithier book, Machiavelli talks about this problem of how should you approach the world when the wheel of fortune is always turning and you don't know if you're going to rise to power or fall. You don't have control over events. And he says in, in The Prince, quote, it is better to be bold than timid and cautious because fortune is a woman and the man who wants to control her must treat her roughly. So this is an obvious allusion to Boethius and the consolation of philosophy. Right? In, in the Consolation of Philosophy, you see uh, philosophy comes to Boethius. He's imprisoned. She gives him this philosophical perspective as, as a solace for his sorrows. Right, And he introduces her to another goddess, a sort of uh, wild, frightening, dangerous goddess, Fortuna, the, the woman Fortune, who is always turning the wheel of fortune. Right? is always raising some men up to heights and tearing others down unpredictably. And Machiavelli here is responding to Boethius a thousand years later and saying, you cannot just sit back passively and accept that 
Lady Fortuna has control over your fate. You have to be bold and aggressive and take control of her, right? So it's, it's, it's almost this kind of brutish metaphor of, of a man taking control of, of a marriage or a household. And this is where our phrase, you know, fortune favors the bold, comes from, right? So Machiavelli, both in his thinking and in his career, demonstrated what he saw as this new ideal of the Renaissance man, right? Which means something a little different to us today, but this is more or less what it meant in the middle of the Renaissance. And I want to read to you a bit of a famous letter that Machiavelli wrote during this period to a friend of his in Florence. So he'd been banished from the city in 1512, and he was only allowed to go back for brief periods, but he took up residence in a country house. And in 1513, he wrote to his friend in the city, Francesco Vettori, and described his life in exile. And he describes being extremely bored, you know, he's been removed from the great arena of, of politics and power and history, really. And he has sort of settled down to trapping birds for a living, you know, poking around the countryside. He describes going to the local tavern, playing games of dice and cards with his country friends and squabbling over, you know, who won or who cheated, uh, you know, a very familiar kind of life of an older man, you know, almost reading it reminded me some of, of my grandfather. And then towards the end of the letter, he, he says the following. On the coming of evening, I return to my house and enter my study. And at the door, I take off the day's clothing covered with mud and dust and put on garments regal and courtly. And reclothed appropriately, I enter the ancient courts of ancient men, where received by them with affection, I feed on that food which is only mine, and for which I was born, where I am not ashamed to speak with them and ask them the reason for their actions, and they in their kindness answer me, and for four hours of time, I do not feel boredom, I forget every trouble, I do not dread poverty, I am not frightened by death. I live entirely through them. So I think this is a very powerful passage in this letter by Machiavelli, which, for one thing, illustrates the way that Renaissance study and the revival of the classics fit into the lives of these humanists, right? These were not, they were not cloistered scholars, and most of them were not artists, although I'll talk about art later. They saw themselves as statesmen and as men of action. And when they were outside of the political realm, like Machiavelli was in his exile, they studied the classics as a kind of proxy, right? As a kind of alternative way of acting and participating in the great events of history. Uh, they could live vicariously through the study of history, and it was a preparation for the rest of life, for the active life, the political life. Not long after this, Machiavelli wrote more letters to these friends in the city, trying to finagle a return 
into government. <laughs> and he wrote The Prince in large part as a kind of extended resume trying to get the Borgia family to hire him and bring him back into the world of politics. So study was not simply the life of the mind. It was part of the arena of life. So this gives you a little picture of what the study of the classics meant in the age of the Renaissance. And it began with these sort of small steps, like collecting and studying and translating letters by figures like Cicero. It was then spurred on dramatically by the fall of Constantinople, right? So Constantinople falls to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, and then the last Byzantine holdout city at Trebizond falls in 1460. And in the years after, uncounted numbers of scholars, monks, diplomats, churchmen from the Eastern Roman Empire fled to the West, right? For whatever reason, decided that they were unsafe or just unwilling to live under Ottoman rule. And they fled to the West, some to Rome, some to Florence and other cities all around Western Christendom. And they brought with them manuscripts and codices of classical works, mostly in Greek. And they brought a finer, more sophisticated, more fluent knowledge of ancient Greek. So there was a kind of explosion of new sources to study and to master at the very same time that this Western interest in the ancient classics was, was rising. And as a result, a kind of new, you might say a new science or a new art, the words at this time were basically interchangeable, a new science or new art of literary examination arose. Okay, the, the intensive study of written sources in order to reconstruct their original forms. Okay, so the Renaissance humanists became historically aware in a way that medieval scholars mostly were not. They no longer assumed that the authoritative version or text that was handed to them was simply the correct form. They became aware that texts changed over time. They could be revised or edited. They, there could be mistakes, corruptions, and that in order to understand and debate what an author intended and what a text meant, they had to consider the time it had come from and the context it came from, and they had to try to reconstruct its original form. Okay, so they became linguistically aware. When did words and phrases arise? How does language change over time? And they set these, this new science of textual analysis to several very important and impactful purposes. One was verification or authentication, as we might call it today. So Renaissance scholars began to ask whether certain texts that they knew and that were part of their education and part of their world 
were even real at all, or if they might be fake or forgeries. And the most famous and important instance of this was the Florentine humanist Lorenzo Valla, who examined the text called The Donation of Constantine. So The Donation of Constantine is a long, kind of tedious, overly detailed charter that the Roman Emperor Constantine gave to the Pope or the Bishop of Rome in the fourth century, basically granting the Pope or delegating to him governmental powers over the city of Rome and its surrounding region, right? And the donation of Constantine had been passed down for centuries and cited as a kind of legal precedent, cited as a sort of warrant for why the Pope should be not only the leader of the church, but the actual ruler and governor of Rome and the papal states, right? The region of, ruled by Rome. And these papal states, of course, still still existed in the 1400s, and they continued to exist right up into the 1800s. However, Lorenzo Valla took up, like Petrarch and others before him, he, he studied and mastered classical Latin. He began to examine different Latin texts from over the centuries and compare and find how words, phrases, syntax changed, he found where certain references to people and places uh, originated, when uh, names began or first appeared in the record. And then he compared the donation of Constantine to this body of Latin texts. And he found that he concluded that the text could not have been written any earlier than the 8th century at earliest, right? So it was really an early medieval creation. It was not an ancient Roman text. And the language that it used could not have been, it simply didn't exist in the time of Constantine, right? So he simply concludes that the document is a forgery, right? And this is politically impactful and controversial because it calls into question this basic underpinning of the Pope's temporal political power. So he debunks the donation of Constantine in 1440, and the Pope does not fall from power, right? The Popes remain in control of Rome and the Papal States for a long time after. But it helps to spur on a kind of wave of examination of legal and political records, right? Which end up having, end up really destabilizing and reshuffling power in Europe. Others take up similar sorts of textual analysis for the purpose not of authentication but of reform, right? And as I mentioned before when I talked about Luther, reform at this time didn't really mean change forward in time. It meant change back, right? Returning to the original form. Right? So if you could use linguistic and textual analysis to determine the original form and original meaning of texts, then you could change laws and practices and institutions to conform to those correct forms. Right? And Desiderius Erasmus was the first 
sort of great uh, hero of this kind of humanism. So Erasmus was very famous in his time in the early 1500s. He was called the Prince of Scholars and the Prince of Humanists. We know him for all sorts of works like uh, In Praise of Folly and his debate with Martin Luther over the question of free will. But what really first established him as an intellectual superstar was his translation of the New Testament, right? So when people read the New Testament in the 15th and 16th centuries, they usually read the Latin Vulgate, right? So the Latin version of the Bible that had been created by St. Jerome. Well, Erasmus decided that he was not going to simply trust this canonical, authoritative translation, right? And that instead he was going to examine the Greek directly, right? And remember, there's this great revival of, in knowledge of and study of Greek because of the fall of Constantinople. So Erasmus sets about collecting and examining the earliest Greek versions of the New Testament books that he can find. And he starts to create his own Latin translation of the New Testament based directly on the Greek form. And in advocating for this project, he says at one point, quote, one thing the facts cry out, and it can be clear, as they say, even to a blind man, that often through the translator's clumsiness or inattention, the Greek has been wrongly rendered. Often the true and genuine reading has been corrupted by ignorant scribes, which we see happen every day, or altered by scribes who are half taught and half asleep. So, here again we see Erasmus sees himself as a humanist scholar who is more enlightened, more has a more active, curious mind, more inventive, and who has the power to recover and understand the original sources. And Erasmus took the ideas and the intellectual authority that he got from this project to advocate for change in Christian worship. And you can see in his other writings, he attacks what he sees as sort of corruptions and innovations in the Christian church. Uh, the, you know, the offering of prayers and sacrifices to saints, uh, the uh, obsession with wealth and beautiful, dazzling objects. And he advocates for a return to a sort of simple piety, uh, putting aside of pomp and wealth, and a return to what he sees as the sort of basic humanist gospel message. So Erasmus is really a Christian humanist, right? And he's applying these ideals of humanists like Petrarch to the church, right? And to the recovery of what he believes is the sort of true, pristine, primitive meaning of the religion. Some could also go further in this direction of questioning an examination of sources and could actually go all the way towards outright skepticism and towards questioning or rejection of all accepted beliefs, customs, and teachings, right? And 
The most famous uh, example of this is the French statesman Michel de Montaigne, who in the late 1500s lived a life a lot like many of these scholars we've been talking about, an active life in politics and diplomacy. But he also spent long periods at home on his own estate, secluded and reflecting and writing. He was, in a sense, the inventor of the essay, right? So a sort of short, personal, reflective document uh, combining, you know, philosophical examination with autobiography and just free-flowing rumination. And in these essays, Montaigne repeatedly asked in French, que sais-je, what do I know? And he repeatedly threw out the possibility that everything that he had been taught, whether you know, Christian doctrine or the manners and ethics of courtly life, French law, that all of these things were simply arbitrary inventions and accidents of his own time and place, which had no more validity than the ideas or practices of any random person, any random savage, as he might put it. So Montaigne, in a way, is a forerunner of radical skeptics and, and nihilists like Nietzsche, okay, radical doubt. And in a way, you we can see this as a kind of extreme outgrowth or the self-criticism and, and self-examination of the Renaissance mind taken to its logical extreme, although very few went all the way in this direction the way Montaigne did. He was still unusual. Humanists, beyond their new interest and new mastery of language and textual examination, the, the humanists asserted the powers of the individual intellect and the senses in a way that was unfamiliar for the most part in the Middle Ages. You know, and as I've said, the Middle Ages are complicated. It's, it's difficult to make simple generalizations, but the humanists tended to see the individual thinking mind and the individual senses as having a real power to understand and master the world. Okay. During this period when people and texts from the Byzantine Empire were flooding westward into Western Christendom, a certain collection of ancient mystical writings were taken out of a monastery in Macedonia and brought to Florence. And a group of scholars in Florence who had been employed in translating Plato and other ancient Greek works dropped those projects and instead began to examine and translate this body of mystical reflections, which they called the Corpus Hermeticum. And the Corpus Hermeticum, it is actually a collection of writings and reflections from mystical cults in Egypt in the third and fourth centuries 
CE, right? So they actually come from the late Roman era, and they show a combination of Roman, Greek, Jewish, and various Gnostic sort of influences. But when these humanist scholars in Florence acquired them in the 1460s, they made a chronological mistake and thought that they were far more ancient. They thought that they must be from earlier than Plato, and that's part of why they dropped their current projects and instead switched to studying the Corpus Hermeticum. They, they were interested in trying to get back to the earliest, oldest sources they could. And when they saw references to ideas and stories in the Corpus Hermeticum that seemed reminiscent of Christianity, they thought this meant that the texts must represent some very ancient, pristine wisdom that was a forerunner or a progenitor of Christianity, right? And this gave them a special kind of religious importance. And the Corpus Hermeticum describe uh, mystical ruminative exercises that can cultivate the mind and the body to see hidden realities in the world and to see hidden connections and concordances between the different levels of reality. And they particularly concern relations between the microcosm and the macrocosm, right? And the microcosm means the sort of tangible, visible world of human scale, right? You know, houses, furniture, dogs, birds, things like this. The macrocosm is the universe, the cosmos, right? The heavens. And the Corpus Hermeticum claims that there are connections, sympathies, between events in the everyday world and the macrocosm, right? And by seeing and understanding these sympathies, you can gain a kind of cosmic knowledge and cosmic power, right? So these Florentine humanists like Marsilio Ficino and Giovanni Pico della Mirandola translate the Corpus Hermeticum in 1471, and they promote this idea that mystical practices and that certain arts like music and architecture have a sort of cosmic, almost magical power to them. And these ideas spread and become very popular from that point onward, right? So in the late 1400s and the 1500s, there's a tremendous growth in arts and sciences that exploit this sort of special, mystical, cosmic power. Okay, there's a great popularity of alchemy, astrology, and other kinds of experimental arts. Uh, a lot of royal governments and royal courts employ, employ men who call themselves magi, right? Magus is a sort of ancient word meaning powerful person or something like sorcerer. And the Magus became a very familiar figure in the halls of power. There are people like John Dee in England who used uh, astrology to predict events, who used uh, angel communication to gain scientific or political or military secrets. Okay, This sort of thinking was very widespread in the Renaissance. And there was no separation at this time. There was no line of distinction between these sort of 
mystical uh, hermetic arts on the one hand and what we would call legitimate science on the other hand right that that sort of split had not developed yet rather these all of these arts and crafts were seen as related because they were all part of this quest for men to cultivate and hone their their power to perceive the world and act in it and control it right they were all part of this humanist project and we can see Ficino himself celebrated this new growth of knowledge that he saw uh, stemming from his own work and in 1492 he said this century like a golden age has restored to light the liberal arts which were almost extinct grammar poetry rhetoric painting sculpture architecture music this century appears to have perfected astrology right so this this sort of triumphalist passage from ficino demonstrates how people saw a reawakening happening right this lost knowledge that fell into darkness in the middle ages has now come back to light right it has been restored to light and people are being empowered by it right whether it is uh whether it's history or grammar or architecture or astrology or alchemy in this context we can see renaissance art fitting into this intellectual world more clearly now i am not an expert in art history my mother studied art history i'm the artistic renaissance is a whole complicated subject unto itself about which people of course have written books and books and there can be you know course after course about the great achievements of renaissance art but what i want to point out is how it fits into this renaissance mode of thinking right the great renaissance artists you know starting from durer in the north uh, donatello and then michelangelo in italy they strove to capture the appearance of things as they were experienced right medieval art tends to either just be decorative or when it's representational it tries to represent social and metaphysical relationships right Ren medieval depictions of people tend to be flat uh, unrealistic and they are posed in such a way to show how they relate to one another socially right you might have a, a scene of saints and then next to the saints uh, a churchman uh, praying to them venerating them right you're illustrating the relationships among these figures and they're supposed to tell a certain kind of social story well the renaissance masters they did that as well but they became obsessed with showing the three-dimensional details of scenes whether outdoor scenes landscapes or particularly human figures and mimicking the way they actually appear to the eye right and the the way that people actually saw figures moving in three dimensions with light and shadow uh, this took on a new importance a new legitimacy right because humans can perceive the world through their senses and in this way 
again, understand it and master it, right? And by creating convincing illusions of humans, uh, human action, living creatures, three-dimensional space, motion, by, by effectively mimicking these phenomena in their art, these Renaissance masters showed their own virtuosity, right, and the power of their minds and their senses to capture, to capture the world, right? So there's this new ambition, this new belief in virtuosity, and of course there's a uh, th there's a new striving to master not only the human form but perspective, right? Depth, depth perception, and a striving to imitate and equal the great works of the ancients, right? So these you know magnificent ancient Greek and Roman sculptures like the Laocoon are being uh, excavated, you know, dug up from under the earth, uh, dredged up from the sea and displayed, and the great uh, brilliance of these ideal classical figures captured in stone are, are now a new benchmark, a new model for the moderns to mimic and equal. And in a lot of this Renaissance art, you will see the artists in some way uh, not only showing off their virtuosity, but inserting themselves into scenes alongside the ancients, right? So just like Machiavelli said, when I go into my study, I put on my robes and I converse with Livy and Polybius. I join their world. I, I live through them. In the same way, if you look at Raphael's The School of Athens, right, his brilliant, rich, complex scene putting together the great philosophers of Athens, which he painted on the walls of the papal offices in the Vatican. If you look closely, Raphael put himself into, <laughs> into the scene, right? He believes, he, he has this, this hope, this aspiration, that through his own brilliance, he can become one of the ancients, right? And time can collapse, right? Past and present collapse. And this Renaissance art is another instance of the same shift in thinking that I described when I talked about Don Quixote, right? So reality for medieval was social, right? How do you know what is real? How do you know what to trust? You're supposed to look to your social relationships, right? What, what do the masters of the past say? What do the leaders of your institution say? What do your teachers say? And how can you uh, compare and examine the arguments of different authorities against one another, right? So philosophy is part of how you position yourself in the social world, right? Reality is social, and the art reflected that, right? The art shows you shows you reality as it truly is because it shows you who people are and how they relate to one another. In the Renaissance, humanists shift to thinking of reality as sensory. The ultimate test of what is real is how you encounter it with your sense, your senses, right? So 
realistic art is not art that shows people in their social roles and relationships. It's art that shows people and things as they look to the eye and that presents them so convincingly and in such perfect detail that you feel as if you could touch them and feel their texture, their shape, their weight, their temperature, right? It appeals to the, the senses and the sensory imagination in the same way that when, I, when Don Quixote indulges in his delusion or is overtaken by his psychosis that he is a knight errant, he goes out and he treats people according to what he believes their social roles should be, right? And their physical appearances to the senses are merely illusions, right? What looks like a windmill is really a giant. What looks like a prostitute is really a princess. What looks like a brothel is really a castle, right? And he seems in these passages to really believe that that's true, right, by all appearances. And then at the end, when the illusion breaks, he switches 180 degrees and says, I have been fooled, I have been tricked, right? And what seemed to me to be a giant was really a windmill. And what seemed, what appeared to me to be a castle was really just a brothel, right? And I am not really Don Quixote. I am just Alonso Quijano of La Mancha. Okay, so so Cervantes is sort of capturing in this storyline and collapsing together into one, one story about one man, this sort of transformation in thought, right? How do you know what is real? Is it how it fits into the web of the social universe or is it how it looks to your senses? So this sort of humanism, it begins among the sort of statesman scholars of the cities of northern Italy, right? And it deeply influences the attitudes of the artists in those same cities, in, in Florence and later Rome and other Italian cities, and also increasingly in the north, right, in similar uh, independent and autonomous cities in Germany and the Low Countries, right, uh, Nuremberg, Rotterdam, Ghent, and so on. This is where the Renaissance way of viewing the world seems to make the most sense most easily. Right? It's where people aspire and have the opportunity to be active, socially mobile individuals asserting themselves in the political realm. Right? But it also spreads to new social groups and new institutions that are arising in, in the age of gunpowder. Right? One of these is, most importantly, the, the new courts, right? The new world of royal and noble courts, right? Where powerful rulers have the money and the prestige to assemble a sort of whole, almost world unto itself around themselves, right? They are able to bring statesmen and scholars and artists 
to their own little social uh, fortresses in their capitals, right? And in this new world, as I talked about in the lecture on the gunpowder revolution, in this new world, the expectations are different, right? What counts as achievement and what counts as honor change, right? And the old nobility used to gain its honor and its prestige from military prowess, right? In the courtly world, they seek patronage, right? It's about gaining a position of power and prestige by getting the attention and getting the favor of the ruler, right? It's a very top-down world. And in this new world, a new kind of character, a new persona arises of the courtier, right? And the original term, again, it's Italian, cortigiano. In French, it becomes courtier, and English takes it from, from the French, right? So we still say courtier. But the courtier was the man adapted to the world of the court and the man adapted to social climbing in the world of the court. And the great encapsulation of this new courtly life in the Renaissance is the short book by Baldassare Castiglione, who was himself a courtier or cortigiano, in the court of the Duke and Duchess of Urbino in Italy in the early 1500s. And in 1528, Castiglione published a book called Il Cortigiano, or The Courtier. And this book takes the form of a dialogue between the Duchess of Urbino, who was named Elisabetta Gonzaga, and, his, and, and her sister-in-law. So apparently Castiglione was in love with Elisabetta Gonzaga, uh, or at least it seems if we, if we believe his love poetry, he was in love with her and wanted desperately to impress her. And this quest conveniently aligned with the endeavor to gain favor and power by impressing the Duke, right? So he writes this book, The Courtier, in the form of a dialogue between the Duchess and her sister-in-law, where they discuss what sort of man do we want here at the ducal court, right? And they describe a certain kind of character and personality. They admire a man who is fluent in languages, who is a good conversationalist, who is witty, quick-witted, who has talent in art and poetry, who also is athletic and shows physical strength, and who has the necessary skills, who is well-versed in history and diplomacy and geography and will be able to serve well as a court official, right? So they kind of sketch out this ideal person for the court, right? And whether or not this is anything close to the truth, whether or not Elisabetta Gonzaga really thought this way, we can see that Castiglione believed that he could crystallize a model and a kind of basic advice book for men who wanted to be successful courtiers, right? And so we still look back today at this 
at this book as sort of the landmark of what it meant to be a Renaissance man, right? Multi-talented, versatile, interesting, uh, ambitious, a totally new ideal from the chivalric ideal of the sort of restrained, self-sacrificing knight, right? Uh, not entirely different. There's still a sense of adventurism, athleticism, but but in the Renaissance, what had been the medieval ideal of chivalry also changed. Uh, you know, people emphasized more that knights should be interesting and charming and witty, uh, and that they should impress women. You know, this the 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 Renaissance man was in a way a kind of distortion or revision of the ideal medieval man. And lastly, the the courtier, according to Castiglione, should have sprezzatura. He should act with sprezzatura, which means it's this sort of untranslatable Italian word meaning something like uh, effortlessness, right, or ease. You should be able to pull off all of these different acts and skills and make it look easy, right, without breaking a sweat, you might say. So this was really uh, a, a high ideal, which in its own way was just as impressive and difficult to attain as the chivalric ideal, right? It was just radically different. And lastly, this humanist ideal of the Renaissance man trickled all the way up to the royal level, right? So in the 1500s, there also was a new sort of kingly humanism, right? The idea that rulers and kings also should be informed, educated, uh, witty, uh, intelligent, at the same time that they are men of action, right, and bold leaders, right? A perfect example of this that we've all surely seen is Henry VIII of England, uh, who, you know, showed off his athletic prowess, his sexual prowess, who was a n not only bold, but you, you might say uh, erratic uh, and, and dangerous political actor, taking on the church, uh, antagonizing much of Europe, and not only that, but he patronized artists like Hans Holbein, who came to England and painted portraits that emphasized Henry VIII's looks, his big, powerful-looking body, his confidence, his masculinity, and his sort of uh, endless string of, of wives. <laughs> Similarly, in France, uh, King Francis I, who was more or less contemporary to Henry VIII, uh, also was uh, worldly, uh, informed, uh, a man of letters, as well as a man of military action, uh, a great arch enemy of the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire. And he brought together a court of humanist scholars and artists and engineers, particularly at his sort of country lodge at Chambord, where it was, it was kind of a hunting lodge, right? So uh, a, a kind of playground of the adventurous masculine ruler in his natural habitat. And among the scholars he brought to that court 
was Leonardo da Vinci, right? The, the another sort of quintessential Renaissance uh, scholar, natural philosopher, experimenter, and artist, who, in a way, you know, like Holbein, reflected the Renaissance prowess of of the king, right? And in this way, the courtier and the king could kind of reflect one another in this sort of symbiotic bond. And it's because of Leonardo da Vinci's time in France, in the employ of Francis I, that the Mona Lisa ended up in France and is still there. So through the, from the viewpoint of this new Renaissance humanism, the old ideals of the Middle Ages didn't entirely go away, but they were transformed, right? And we can see this in part in how people looked back at the Crusades, right? So through the high and late Middle Ages, crusading was sort of the great chivalric ideal, right? It's pious, Christian, and also uh, warlike, right, to go on crusade. And you could be a pious Christian and show off your military prowess and gain honor sort of in both in both ways at once. Well, probably the greatest hero of the Crusades from the point of view of the time was King Louis IX, right, who became a saint, right? And very few kings became saints in the Middle Ages, but Louis IX is one who did, and he went on crusade twice, and he ended up dying uh, of a disease on a crusade. And, and, and in a way, this was really the high ideal of the crusades at the time in the Middle Ages, was to go out there and die, right? And lots of people did. They didn't win many crusades. They lost a lot more than they won. They Most of them were futile exercises. But they could elevate people to this new kind of uh, level of glory, right? Well, in the Renaissance, the ideal shifted. And rather than Louis IX, the, the new rising star of the crusades, as people looked back at them, was Richard the Lionheart, right? Who actually did manage to win some battles, you know, who was a reasonably effective military commander who faced off against this sort of great arch-rival in the person of Saladin. And Richard the Lionheart, in a way, you know, he, uh, he we, we know from chronicles that he, he loved music, he loved to dance, he was a great lover, he had mistresses, and he embodies this kind of masculine ideal of the Renaissance in a much more compelling way than Louis IX, right? And in this way, the, the new celebration of these figures like Henry VIII and Richard the Lionheart, uh, they, they capture what Renaissance humanists loved, what fascinated them. And lastly, I'll point out, they underscore the deep a gendered nature of the Renaissance and of Renaissance humanism, right? These scholars like Machiavelli constantly discussed and tried to define virtue as we translate it today, right? In its virtù in Italian, as that's the word Machiavelli used. And the root of it is simply the Latin vir, man, right? Same as virility, right? And this ideal of Renaissance virtue was 
fundamentally masculine, right? There, hardly any author or philosopher at the time discussed female heroism, or you know, there weren't Renaissance women, as far as we can see. I mean, there were. There were great Renaissance artists like Artemisia Gentileschi, but there was no ideal or convention of the Renaissance woman. This was really a male, masculine project, right? And again, you can see that reflected so vividly in that passage by Machiavelli about how to approach fortune, right? Fortune is a woman, and it is better to be bold because fortune favors the bold. Right? And the man who wants to control her must treat her roughly. Right? This, is, this is very deeply and thoroughly a, a male masculine uh, ideal. And Renaissance scholarship largely took place outside of the universities, outside of the academy. A lot of private tutors, tutors who had mastered the classics, passed on this humanist learning, and the people... The families and institutions who paid for this Renaissance education wanted it to be given to men, right, to sons, not to daughters, right? And while we can point to great scholars and, uh, you know, intellectual authorities in the Middle Ages like Eloise or uh, Christine de Pizan, the, the women are much fewer and far between in the Renaissance, right? And the modern era in many ways entrenches the distinctions between the male sphere, the sphere of action, and the sphere of intellectual life, which is understood to be the realm of men, and the distinction between that and and the domestic realm, the spiritual realm, which is that of women, right? So so the Renaissance really furthers the the social division and mental division of men's and women's worlds. So that's basically my overview of Renaissance humanism. Uh, I hope in the future to talk more about the lives and beliefs of the commoners. I'll probably get to that uh, next month. And to these further uh, upheavals of thought and of life like the later stages of the Reformation and the colonization of the Americas, the slave trade, and so forth. Uh, But also next month I will continue my series on myths of the month and I intend to start a series on objects and artifacts which will work like the myths of the months where they'll alternate between being uh, paid for by patrons and being free but for patrons only. So thank you for listening. Uh, If you have topics or questions you want me to address, I encourage you to comment on SoundCloud or email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. And if you can, please uh, take a look at my Patreon page also under Historiansplaining. Thank you.